Section 14 of Four Science Fiction Novellas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Four Science Fiction Novellas by Harold Vincent. Creatures of Vibration, Part 2. When he awakened, it was to stare for a dazed moment into a pair of blue eyes that looked down upon him in a place of dim light and stuffy atmosphere. The eyes were only vaguely familiar in his befuddled memory. Beautiful eyes, though, and incredibly dear. Aura, he exclaimed, in wondering remembrance, trying to sit up as he grasped her hand. Hush, she warned him, placing a fingertip to his lips. "'Be quiet now, and perhaps they'll leave us alone for a while.' "'They—did they capture us?' he whispered. "'Are you hurt?' "'We're prisoners, all right, excepting poor father. "'But they didn't harm me much outside of the rough handling. "'The devils! What of Didus? "'He was growing stronger by the minute, "'and now saw that they were in an open-mouthed cave, "'and that Mado was sitting hunched dejectedly in a corner.' his massive shoulders drooping and his head bowed on his chest. Father, they killed him, or aside almost inaudibly. Have you forgotten? We saw the dart strike him, and I... I saw it sticking from his chest. Oh, Carr! A dry sob caught in her throat. Yes, yes, Lord, Carr groaned, sick at heart with a sudden recollection and full compassion for the stricken girl. He patted her hand with clumsy tenderness as she turned her head and gazed out through the cave mouth in silence that was fraught with intense pain. She would take it like that, with little to say but with much inward suffering. And then he noticed a fourth occupant of the cavern, a young lad of Titan. Like one of the savages in his small stature and in the large size of his head, he was much lighter in color, and his body was encased in a snug one-piece garment of shivering material of silky texture. And there was a different light in his eyes, the light of intelligence and culture. "'Who is that?' Carr whispered. Aura stared when she saw that the stranger was on his feet. "'Oh!' she exclaimed. "'I'm glad he has recovered. "'He's one of the civilized ones.' They captured him with his ovoid when the second pteranodon went out after them. Mado was standing now, endeavoring to communicate with the lad by means of signs and the drawing of crude pictures in the red sand of the cavern floor. The graceful little fellow watched him with understanding and with a smile of amused tolerance. Then he halted the big Martian with an imperious motion, addressing him in velvety voice. Natsu, he said simply, placing a forefinger on his breast and bowing before the astonished Mado. Imps of the canals, the Martian exclaimed, grinning delightedly as he cast a swift look at Carr and Aura. He's telling me his name. Mine's Mado, he said, turning his eyes to the keen gray ones that smiled up at him. Mado, he repeated, placing a huge fist against his own chest and bending his body in awkward imitation of the lad's courtly gesture. They made no attempt to converse in tongues that would convey no meaning, but there was no mistaking the quick friendship that sprang up between the incongruous pair. Mado was the boy's slave from that moment, and Natsu looked up to the Martian with all of youth's admiration for his vast bulk and rippling muscles. Suddenly they were without light, 
and Carr saw that a curtain of woven rushes had been dropped over the mouth of the cave. There were soft padding footsteps on every side, and he drew back against the rock wall with Aura clasped in his arms. A sinewy hand grasped his wrist and twisted his right arm free. He lashed out in the darkness and was rewarded by a grunt of pain as his fist contacted with an unseen face. Natsu's voice rose in anger, and Mado's wrathful bellow was followed by a frightful commotion as he tore into his assailants. They were everywhere in the blackness, these slippery little savages of Titan, their half-naked bodies crowding him and stifling him with their sweaty nearness. Again and again, Carr struck out, but it was like fighting a horde of squirming and crawling feline creatures that swarmed over him and bore him down by sheer weight of numbers. They dragged Aura from his arms and quickly overpowered him. Throngs of rawhide twisted deeply into the flesh of his wrists, and he was hauled forth into the daylight. Securely tied hand and foot, Carr was propped up sitting with his back to a huge boulder. He saw they had been carried to the place they had viewed in the disk of the Ruldan. A dozen paces away, Aura and Mado sat similarly bound. The Martian had been gagged as well, and Carr was forced to smile, despite the seriousness of the situation. His mad bellowings must have proved as painful to the ears of the red dwarfs as his fists to their bodies. Natsu, unbound and walking, proudly erect, was being marched to the edge of a smoking fissure by two of the strangers. No others of the red men were in sight. It was the place of sacrifice they had seen in the Ruldan, and the natives were in hiding as before. Natsu would be the first to go, then Aura, most likely. He strained desperately at his bonds when he realized the awful significance of their position. It was incredible that Aura was here and in the hands of these unspeakable monsters. Why, she'd be thrown into the incandescent fields of the flapping fire god, along with the rest of them. He groaned in an agony of self-recrimination. He should not have allowed her to come on this mad voyage. Then came that roaring column of flame from out of the crater, and the weird fluttering thing whose intense heat radiated across the intervening space like the breath of a blast furnace. The rumble of drums commenced, and thousands of the red men dashed over the rocky area to worship at the shrine of their pitiless god. As their monotonous chant rose high, Natsu was rushed to the edge of the pit. The ghastly shimmering heat ghost drifted hungrily to await the flinging of the slight form into its consuming embrace. Carr was glad to see that Aura had turned her head. And then there came a sucking noise from the depths of the crater, and the pillar of blue flame vanished abruptly, the incandescent ghost shape flapping disconsolately in its wake. The chant of savages trailed off into a chorus of disgruntled murmurings, and the booming of drums died down in disappointment. The worshippers had been cheated of their sadistic pleasure. There was something wrong with the timing of the rite. Their mysterious fire-god had granted the captives a reprieve. But the prisoners were not deceived by the solicitous treatment accorded them by their captors when they were returned to the cave and their bonds were severed. For well they knew that at the next appearance of the phenomenon of the pit, they would be dragged off to the sacrifice. Sooner or later, all of them were to meet the fate of those given into the embrace of the heat demon. 
a guard of fifty or more of the savages, armed with blow-guns and stone hatchets, paraded continuously before the mouth of the cave, as one of their numbers returned with a huge, woven container of fruits and nuts of strange form and color. This was set before them, and the bearer withdrew. Huh, Mado grunted. Seems like they want to fatten us up for this heated cheat of theirs. Like hogs fattened for the market. But he reached for the striped yellow melon atop the heap, and, at a bright nod of approval from Natsu, bit into its smooth skin. Carr's stomach rebelled when he looked at the food. He could not bear the sight of the stuff, sitting there in the damp cavern with Aura's blue eyes regarding him in the dim light. Those wide eyes held a gleam of hope and trust that would not be discouraged. He gazed out through the cave mouth and calculated their chances. There were none. Not against that horde of barbarians. There were too many of the devils to fight with their bare hands. If only they had their ray pistols or a torpedo projector. At least they could sell their lives dearly. His eyes narrowed speculatively when they came to rest on a peculiar egg-shaped object that stood out there in the open. It was Natsu's ovoid. Here was an idea. But he saw that its entrance door was open and that the space inside was too small for any of them excepting one of the small stature of the Titanese. It was cramped with machinery. Natsu was the only one of their number who could squeeze into the thing. In fact, he alone knew how to operate the queer flying machine. There must be others of his kind, plenty of them, another country or a city full of them at least. Perhaps he might obtain aid if only he could be made to understand, and if they could get him out of there safely somehow. Mado, he called, pointing, do you suppose we could dope a way out of getting Natsu aboard his sky vehicle and go for help? The Martian stared his mouth stuffed with food and his jaws in full action. He strained suddenly to swallow the huge mouthful so he could make reply. Not a chance, he grunted. Why, there's a million of them out there. You won't catch them napping. But he turned his attention from the basket of fruit and made a desperate effort to convey the idea to Natsu, whose bright eyes took in his every significant motion, and whose sensitive fingers traced images in the sand that conveyed his own thoughts to the mind of the Martian in rapid succession. He's got it, Mado gloated. The game little cuss would go in a minute if we could get him to the ovoid. He's got a picture of the big island here, so help me. An island covered with circular dwellings, made of metal like the ovoids. He indicates, look here. Car and Aura moved over to watch the swift sketching of the Titanese lad. By means of pantomime and his carefully drawn pictures, he told them of his people, making it clear that they were forced to live in insulated dwellings and travel only in the ovoids, which likewise were insulated against the devastating vibrations that emanated from Saturn's rings. He sketched those rings illustrating the vibrations and tapping his own forehead in explanation of the effect on the brain, pointing to the savages to indicate the ultimate fate of his kind. The protective insulation, it appeared, was not permanent. Sooner or later, all of them would become barbarians like the others. The savages out there were their fathers, mothers, sisters and brothers, gone mad. 
their skins darkened by continued action of the vibrations after they fled their insulated homes his pictures of the family life were meticulously drawn his people never warred upon these savage kin of theirs naturally though the reverse was not always true however natsu pointed to the ovoid and showed his willingness to help the strangers but he shook his head sadly as he counted the barbarians on his fingers multiplying the number endlessly by clapping his hands there were too many of them the thing was impossible good lord carr exclaimed he's a marvel at communicating his thoughts without words but i'd think his people would beat it for the hills without waiting might as well have it over with but they're still working on the problem or objected with their wisdom they'll finally get the thing under control and they probably hope to discover a way of restoring their maddened relatives she was doing something with the red sand wetting her fingers in a trickle of water that oozed from the wall and making a red paste which she smeared on her white forearm and then rubbed off i guess you're right carr admitted then watching her strange performance he asked what are you doing she looked up with sparkling eyes and stretched forth her arm it stains carr see she exclaimed excitedly we can fix up nasu to resemble one of the savages it is the exact color of their skin mado he called sensing at once the possibilities of her discovery they could make up natsu to perfection mingling with the barbarians unsuspected he might get possession of the ovoid the titanese fell in with the idea at once and the two men started to work on him with water and the powdery stuff they had taken for red sand they stripped him of his silken garment and smeared him from head to foot carr taking special care to see that his upper body and face were thoroughly covered then after using his own clothing to swab off the coating they stepped back to view the result he was exactly like one of the red men in color now and he stood there twisting his face in a wicked grin to heighten the similarity the little devil mado chuckled he gets the idea perfectly we'll have to muss his hair now and fix him up with a kirtle like theirs removing his suede jacket and turning it inside out he draped it about the slim hips of natsu then slapping his chest approvingly there you are lad he told the grinning youngster a tough-looking kid we've made of you too the words were lost on the young titanese but his bright eyes showed that he fully comprehended the humor as well as the gravity of the situation the improvised covering would pass without question as one of the untanned hides the barbarians wore dangling from their waists the disguise was faultless aura had been watching at the mouth of the cave now she called out in low-voiced warning hurry one of them is coming carr moved forward swiftly to face the opening while mado stood with his great bulk hiding the now unrecognizable natsu the savage entered proceeding directly to where carr was standing he bent over the fruit basket and then the earth man was upon him the wiry red man struggled furiously but carr had a grip on his windpipe that stopped his attempts to cry out and quickly seduced him to a state of flabby subjection then he bound and gagged his captive tearing strips of linen from his own shirt to provide the necessary material 
in a moment they had bundled the trussed-up dwarf into a corner of the cavern and natsu stepped forth blithely to lift the basket to his shoulder everything seemed to happen at once after that natsu stalked boldly out among the savages who paid him no attention whatsoever he passed out of their field of vision for a moment and then they saw him at the circular door of the ovoid in a flash he was inside and the thing soared speedily into the air and out of sight the red men broke forth in a babble of excited jabbering and then they were crowding into the cave hundreds of them it seemed shrieking their rage as they attacked the hapless prisoners carr went down fighting madly but to no avail he hadn't counted on this he should have known better a crushing weight of them was upon him clawing and beating at him as he struggled to rise they were suffocating him with their rank animal odors and then he was dragged into the open air battered and dazed he saw they had found their fellow the one he had bound and gagged aura was considerably mussed up but unharmed he observed with relief but Mado lay there inert this was the first time carr had ever seen him take the count at the hands of man when they had untied the one whose place had been taken by natsu he came straight for the earthman and would have brained him with a huge stone had not his fellows interfered he objected strenuously his eyes red with hate and a torrent of harsh gutturals pouring from his lips but the others held him off this strange white giant from the machine of the skies was to be saved for the embrace of the fire god with the entire blame for natsu's escape thus placed upon the terrestrial aura and mado were returned to the cavern and left unmolested but carr was prodded into moving over against a boulder and was surrounded by a semicircle of the dwarves who squatted calmly to watch him blow-guns in their hands and stone hatchets on the ground within easy reach they were taking no more chances with this one the long day of titan dragged interminably but the watchful eyes of his guards never strayed from their prisoner at any moment the fire god might make an appearance and the rite of sacrifice take place carr supposed that the thing made more or less regular appearances like a geyser of earth and next time there would be no escape night fell and still those eyes watched intently in the light reflected against the low-flung clouds from the seething crater nearby nothing had been seen of natsu or any of the ovoids probably it was useless to expect them they could not bring themselves to do battle against these savage kin of theirs anyway he was glad the little fellow had gotten away he hoped he was safely in bed if they had beds in those insulated dwellings he could not sleep all through the night he sat with bowed head alternately planning rescue attempts and cursing himself for bringing aura to this horrible end Didus was dead the nomad was hopelessly beyond repair for many days even if they could make their escape and locate it natsu had saved his own skin and they were left to the mercy of these vibration crazed brutes who waited there in the flickering red twilight all around him it was a revolting ending for an adventure that had started so auspiciously with the first faint light of dawn came the roaring of the pillar of flame from out of the crater 
instantly there rose the hollow booming of the drums and the chanting of thousands of the barbarous worshippers the place was swarming with them almost instantly and carr's guards closed in on him with evil glee aura was brought out into the open her arms held fast by two of the red devils who yanked her roughly along between them carr roared out in blind rage and in awful fear for the girl he struck out viciously into the first grinning face that pressed near. Something in his brain seemed to snap then, and he became a snarling, fighting animal, battling against overwhelming odds in defense of his mate. A dart buried itself in his arm, and a stone hatchet bit into his shoulder, but he scarcely felt the hurts. All that mattered now was Aura. They were taking her away taking her to the fields of that incredible hot thing that flapped there at the crater's rim. An arm snapped like a pipe-stem in his fingers, and he heard the squeal of pain from somewhere in the tangled mass of savages around him. And then they were falling back, easing up on him. The din was increasing, but it seemed that a note of fear had crept in to replace the exultant frenzy of those chanting voices. The drums were stilled. Wiping the blood from his eyes with the back of his hand, he saw the barbarians running everywhere. They were screaming in superstitious terror and fighting one another in their desperate anxiety to escape the vicinity of their precious fire-god. A tremendous voice boomed out over the hubbub, a voice that came from the crater in vast commanding gutturals that struck terror into the souls of the panicky barbarians. Yet somehow that mightily sonorous voice carried a familiar ring. Carr raised astonished eyes to the pillar of blue flame and was seized with a well-nigh uncontrollable impulse to flee with the red men. For a monstrous image of Didas swayed there in the hot vapors, a massive arm raised menacingly, and an equally Brobdenagian voice issuing from his lips in fiery syllables of the red man's tongue. Didas, Carr shouted. Didas, Aura, Mado. And then he was running toward the crater's edge in bounding strides that carried him twenty feet at a leap. He understood now. Didas had recovered from his wound and was reversing the Ruldan's energy. He was projecting his own image and voice, many times amplified, into the column of fire to terrify the savages. Aura was laying there on the rim of the pit. She had fainted at the sight of the ghost shape, whose white-hot folds flapped there, reaching to engulf her in their all-consuming embrace. Carr babbled like a madman as he pulled her away from the horrible thing that pulsated with eager flutterings not three feet away, its hot breath singeing her silken lashes and brows. Mado was there, encouraging him and yelling something else he couldn't understand, pointing skyward. And then he saw it, the nomad, with its sleek, tapered cylinder of a body nosing down toward them with the silvery aura of its propulsive energy gleaming like a beacon of hope against the dull clouds of the satellite of terror. And there was something else, one of the ovoids of Titan, clinging there to the vessel's hull plates, alongside the open manhole. Natsu had not failed them after all. His mind refused to question the miracle further. Somehow, when the vessel landed, he managed to reach the manhole with his precious burden. He staggered through the passageway and into their stateroom, tenderly stretching Aura on her own bed. 
and the next instant he was rummaging in the medicine closet. He found ointment for her burns, smelling salts, damp cloths. With trembling fingers he ministered to her, a great joy welling up within him as he saw she was recovering. Another minute, back there at the crater, and he'd have lost her forever. He swallowed hard at the thought, his eyes misty as he looked down at her and remembered. Impatiently he jerked the barbed dart from his arm, and poured a powerful antiseptic into the open wound, unmindful of the pain. As best he could, he disinfected his other cuts and bandaged them. Aura had raised herself, and now sat there, swaying weakly and regarding him with anxious gaze. A little later they made their way forward to the control room. The nomad had taken off and was drifting slowly higher. At the control sat a strange, bedaubed figure, Natsu. Mado was peering through the coils of a helix of silver ribbon that had been erected beside the Roldan. Father, Aura darted past him and dropped to her knees on the floor plates at the Martian side. The body of Didas was slumped there, a ghastly corpse, within those gleaming coils. But his kind features were fixed in a serene smile. He had gone to his reward with content in his heart. Only then did Carr remember. One could not subject his body to the reversed energies of the Rulden without certain expectation of death. A few short seconds with those terrible oscillations surging through his being, carrying the amplified visual and oral reproduction through the ether, and the European scientist had perished. Knowingly, willingly, Didus had given his life that the rest of them might live. Recovered miraculously from his first serious injury, he had done this magnificent thing deliberately and gladly. A great lump rose in Carr's throat as Aura's sobbing came to his ears. With his vision blurred by tears, he turned to the pilot's seat, where Natsu faced him with solemn eyes. Natsu, go now, the amazing young Titanese stated. He spoke in halting syllables of Kos, the language of the inner planets. Carr stared agape, scarcely believing his ears. Didus, great man, Natsu continued, relinquishing his seat to the dazed Earthman. Natsu find him in ship. My people already there with him. They want to help when you come. Return after capture and heal dart wound of Didus. Bring wire and help him fix motors. Work very quick, my people. Didus have brain machine. Talk with Natsu, teach him words, also very quick. Natsu tell where you are and come to help. Then he scare away red men and die. That is all. Now I go, and you go also, quickly. So that's how it happened, Carr muttered, slowly mulling over the amazing things he had heard. He watched the Titanese lad keenly as his eyes wandered in Mado's direction. He saw the admiring light that came into them as the big Martian removed the body of Ditas from the helix and carried it gently away. Wait a minute, he interposed, as Natsu made as if to leave. Mado would like to talk to you. Must go soon. The youngster drew himself up proudly. Natsu is prince of his people. They need him. And you... You must go at once. Vibrations of Mother Planet's rings work on you too long already. Must be quick, else you be wild men, like those down there. 
he waved his arm in a gesture that embraced all titan anxiety was written large on his countenance and his gaze travelled nervously to the door through which mado must return the big martian was not long in coming he had carried the body of dita saft leaving aura there with her dead carr's heart ached for her he knew how silently and terribly she suffered knowing that her father had been healed off his deadly wound by the friendly titanese only to be taken from her afterwards by his own heroic act made the blow doubly hard later they would give didas a decent burial sending him through the airlock to drift aimlessly in space preserved through the ages by intense cold and the absence of air a fitting tomb for the noblest of the vagabonds Mado chattered endlessly with Natsu, who was impatient to be off. Seeing that it was impossible to detain him, and realizing at last the stern necessity of hastening their own departure, he finally let him go. The youngster bid Carr a sober, friendly farewell, and followed Mado to the airlock. Carr heard the clang of the manhole cover as it swung home, and was bolted to its seat. The old boy drifted away from the vessel and dropped toward the forest beneath them. Natsu had gone to rejoin his people. His fingers strayed to the controls. They must get away from the evil influence of those vibrations. He had felt something of their degrading power in the fighting down there. He had almost become a savage himself, he remembered with a revulsion of feeling. The feel of the levers brought him to a renewed sense of confidence and responsibility. A while back he thought he'd never perform such simple duties again. The nomad responded instantly and rose swiftly to hover over the pit of the fire god. The flame had partially subsided and the ghost shape wobbled there, changing form rapidly with darkening colors. Some weird phenomenon of nature that those brutes had set up as a deity— Carr increased the repulsion energy once more, and the nomad shot skyward like a rocket. Through the floor port he saw Natsu's tiny ovoid scudding over the treetops. Then it had vanished. "'We're getting away none too soon,' said Mado, rejoining him. "'Right.' Carr watched the temperature indicator as he increased speed to the maximum they could withstand in the atmosphere." They were out above the cloud layer then, and he cast apprehensive eyes on the enormous flat disks encircling the great globe that was Saturn. Something like a hundred and seventy thousand miles across them, he remembered. But the astronomers of the inner planets had little actual knowledge of their composition. They knew nothing at all of their terrible power or their strange inhabitants. The nomad left Titan with tremendous acceleration now, as he increased the speed of the rejuvenated generators. They'd go on, on toward Uranus, Neptune, anywhere, away from this ring planet that was responsible for the death of one of their number, away from the region that was soon to become the tomb of Detus. There was silence then as the nomad raced on through the blackness. Mado gripped the rail of the port and peered long and earnestly at the tiny pinpoint of light that was now Titan. Great kid, that Natsu, the Martian said after a while. Too bad he couldn't come along with us. Yes, Carr was thinking of the different life there would be on board the Nomad, and well he knew that Mado was thinking of the same thing. 
the martian had missed the close companionship of his terrestrial friend since his marriage to aura missed it more than he would admit even to himself and the lad natsu had appealed to him he would have fathered him as only a lonely bachelor can suddenly carr's own friendship for the big fellow seemed a wonderful thing never mind old man he whispered reaching over and gripping mado's hand mightily we'll be a three-cornered family aura and you and i and who knows but that you'll find the one and only girl yourself some fine day oh shut up mado grunted but a big hand closed down hard on carr's fingers and the earthmen knew that their friendship was more firmly cemented than ever before end of section fourteen